2: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Positively Trek. I'm Dan Gunther, and with me is the wonderful, the amazing, the terrific Barry DeFord to talk all about some really cool political stuff with Star Trek, sort of. I'm excited for this one. Barry, how's it going?
3: Well, I'm well, and I I love all the adjectives you use to describe me. I I feel (laughs) uh, that's... It's just, just very lovely. Thank you, sir. Um, and also, I feel like you're buttering me up here. Um, this is like right up my alley style uh, conversation, obviously. So, um, you know, I love the idea of talking about politics within Star Trek. I think... Uh, it's the year of the Bell Riots, and sadly, <laughs> I don't necessarily feel like we'll be missing them. <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, I,
2: I think it's also the year of the Irish Unification, isn't it? It I
3: is truly, and uh, oh my goodness, that would big be... Big year uh, for Star Trek. <laughs> that would be... Uh, our, our day will come, um, as they say in the I- Irish Republic. I, did you know I'm related to a Republican? Uh, an Irish mm, no. Republican, that is. Yeah. Um, he was shot at Kilmainham Jail uh, in 1916. And I stood wow. in the spot where he was shot. His name is Amon Thomas Kent. So, Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's from he's from up in uh, the, the Galway area, but he grew up in Cork. And then he went to Dublin, and he played the pipe organ for uh, Pope Pius Tenth.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was kind of involved
3: in that whole, like, let's not be part of a British colony anymore. And he was killed for it.
2: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. Cool in quote marks there.
3: Yeah, cool in quote marks. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I just had my uh, my ancestry, I, my mom gave me the ancestry thing, and so it's from Ireland, actually, and, and the lady was saying, she's like, oh, you're 40, 47% Irish, and I'm like, what does that mean? And she's like, well, I don't want to put it this, too badly, but uh, it's a pretty high likelihood that there's inbreeding in your background. <laughs> I'm <just> like, oh. <laughs> she's like, yeah, you're, you're pretty solidly from the Galway, County Mayo, sort of Connaught district of Ireland. Ireland and uh, there's not a lot of people out there. And I'm like, okay, well, that's great.
2: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I I feel like you go back far enough in all of our histories. There's uh, a, a lot of stuff like that, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a a whole thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, yeah. So we're going to be talking about some politics and, and interesting stuff to do with the Star Trek universe. I always find the best Star Trek discussions are when we dig deep into the background of this thing we love, right? Like what makes the Star Trek universe tick? How does that all work? Like we watch these shows week to week with this setting, this supposedly futuristic socialist utopia where they've solved not all, but a lot of the problems that we have nowadays and, and kind of created a world where they pay a lot of lip service to everything being equal and everyone having equal opportunity and What does that mean? What does that actually look like? And specifically this week, I wanted to take a look at some problems with what I think of as, and maybe this isn't the right term. Maybe we can kind of hash this out, but some problems with what I see as a Starfleet or a Federation meritocracy that we kind of see play out in the Star Trek universe. So let's start with that. I guess meritocracy is Starfleet. And in a wider sense, the Federation, a meritocracy. Well,
3: I think you should give the definition first. You've written one here and I like it.
2: (laughs) Okay. So yeah, definition of meritocracy. I've got a couple here. A government or the holding of power by people selected on the basis of their ability or a ruling or influential class of educated or skilled people. So basically the idea of getting ahead on merit. You're the right person for the job. You have the right skills, experience. You should be elevated to the top position, basically.
3: So my my question just sort of for you Dan as the as the author of this episode and I just want the audience to know that uh, of course you know uh, former co-host of Politrex my whole thing is politics um <laughs> it's sort of what 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 gets me through is is learning more about politics and sometimes that can may make me a bit of a drag at parties um but <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what what gets you cuz obviously if you have this question Um, I would say that it sort of behooves an answer of maybe to some degree you think that Star Trek has inside of it or the universe basically makes Starfleet for sure and potentially the Federation a meritocracy. How deep in your heart do you feel this is the case, Dan?
2: Well, it's just something that I I kind of started to think about with the recent uh, kind of reintroduction of Nick Locarno in Lower Decks. And we saw kind of how his career or, you know, his life afterwards played out and that sort of thing, which made me go back and watch The First Duty, the episode of TNG that introduced the character. And now he's a member of what they call Nova Squadron. And he says they're the best of the best. They're the elite group. They have the best pilots. Uh, They get special treatment because they've shown... Aptitude for this sort of thing on its face. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I, I think there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but is what happens to them a result of their being elevated that way? Like on paper, meritocracy sounds wonderful and, and terrific, But does it lead to situations like what happened with Nova Squadron, where they, for example, believed that they could do anything? That's what Nicola Carno said. We're Nova Squadron. We can do anything. There's another group later that says something very similar. And they believe that they can do this band maneuver and it's going to wow everybody. And them practicing for it results in the death of a fellow cadet and them not wanting to lose that privileged place they have, lying to cover up what happened in order to get away with it. So would you
3: say that in our current society, would they have done anything
2: differently? That's an interesting question. I I feel like... Probably not, because as Star Trek is uh, a vehicle for showing our day-to-day life in the future kind of thing, I feel like it was presented as a lesson for the people viewing. And I feel like there's a lot of analogous situations to day-to-day life nowadays too. Maybe not necessarily meritocracy. Like I said, maybe that is the wrong term, but this belief in the elitism of a few who are given special privileges and what that could lead to, I guess. This was kind of the starting point for my starting to think about this and try to hash it out a bit. So
3: I've been a little coy with my response to this just because I'm really interested, Dan, in in sort of how you're kind of parsing this together and you've given me a a much better idea of where you are kind of on the terrain of conversation and so i think that yes i think starfleet definitely is a meritocracy right and you can see what it does to the minds of its ensigns caricaturized i would say mostly through lower decks but also Mm -hmm. weaponized through the um through the activities of lucarno and nova squadron a hundred percent i would say that meritocracy breeds entitlement um, and it can breed a form of um, very scary ableism in a lot of cases too, mm. I think, where, you know, you start creating this kind of ideal person. And, you know, you'd mentioned earlier that, that Star Trek kind of gives us a socialist-styled future. Um, I would push back and say that uh, it actually isn't socialist in the sense that it has actually gone point. Uh, past the point of scarcity Mm -hmm. and with that you can only have socialism or capitalism so long as there's scarcity right they socialism and capitalism just distribute that scarcity in a different way if you want to get down to the brass tacks of either ideology so with the fact that they are now post-scarcity if you think about it and i know this will make some people kind of in our kind of society with its rugged individualism and hard work sort of aspect feel to things like, oh, well, people will just take advantage of that and just be lazy. And for me, it's like, yes, and like, what, what does that actually mean? Right. Like, mm mm-hmm. If I wanted to take an entire year off and build a replica of the USS Enterprise, and I had all of the means to do that, I had all of the ability, um, and we're in a post-scarcity environment, I don't have to produce anything. So I can just totally pursue a thing that I love. Now, I think what that does in terms of how we start to derive incentive, um, clearly Star Trek, Starfleet itself has a very merit-based, um, you know, valor and And you know bravery and and you know cunning and intelligence and all of these things have been turned into social values that people uphold, revere to some degree, and get caught up in um, and I don't think that's unfamiliar to us in our society. I think the difference is is where the stakes are, right. Nova squadron could have just been like, "Oh, I guess we can't do the maneuver guys, and we're still going to pass and be okay, and everything will be fine right It was there in entitlement that gave them the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that we can recognize in our own society. So interesting how, though we live in a post-scarcity environment, we might still fall prey to some of our, you know, prideful feelings of, you know, this is mine because it's mine, or, you know, I'm the best because I'm the best, uh, or, you know, basically how do people handle being great gracefully? you know, um, in certain ways, but also understanding that, you know, someone like Geordie LaForge is a way to push back against the, the potential ableism that a meritocracy could create. So that's sort of my opening salvo on on meritocracy in Star Trek.
2: Yeah, that's entitlement is the perfect term for that. And I wonder if like the story of Nova Squadron, if that had been done in a more modern setting, maybe we would see something more along the lines of there's some anonymous whoever who's going to award a million dollar cash prize to anyone who can do the covert starburst maneuver. And that would provide some incentive to fuel the the cutthroat competition that we would see these uh, various squadrons do. And in Star Trek, it's all about pride and honor and, and saving face kind of thing and, and being the best. So that that's an interesting, I was, I was kind of trying to game it out in my head. Like if this was like, I don't know what an air force Academy in the U S name is, but like, if it was some group like that, like a top gun Academy. Maverick. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
3: oh boy. Yeah. I think, I I think that obviously it's the militarism of it that can kind of pull pull stuff into that. I mean, we can go back to Patroclus, Achilles' nephew or cousin or something like that, who dresses like Achilles and gets himself killed because he's he feels entitled to to the same honors as his as his relative without the whole you know my mum was a goddess or a demigod who dipped me in the river Styx and all that jazz, right? This kind of hubris, I think, can can really shine in Nova Squadron but I want to just juxtapose that a little bit to Red Squad in Mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine and the sort of like if Lord of the Flies was Star Trek right the kids wouldn't eat each other alive no they would turn into a hyper-focused extremely fanatic group of kids ready to die you know like ready to serve to the end and be so serious and and stuff like that i mean i think about conflicts happening right now and a lot of the atrocities that are taking place in palestine are being done by 20 year old israeli soldiers they're kids right like yeah. they they're very young and and they have they they have this invincibility sense uh to them and it's 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 dangerous to see and and we've seen this in the past before right you know american soldiers at a young age getting conscripted and going to vietnam that's gonna to change your behavior you know and obviously I don't want to go too much into Godwin's law but when especially people with the monopoly of violence say like Starfleet um, feel entitled to that monopoly of violence there's all your bad morals right
2: oh yeah and we'll get there for sure oh I yeah no, to I'm, say I'm on that. so excited to
3: talk about bad morals but let's keep it let's keep it between Nova Squadron and Red Squad do you think mm. that Red Squad would try a, a, a you know a bravado laden maneuver like Nova Squadron maybe I'm burying the lead with the question because i certainly don't think so
2: red squad's an interesting case because i i have this this thought about them which i hadn't really thought of before from this this angle but in the deep space nine two-parter home front and paradise lost red squad is used by the admiral who's attempting to organize a military coup he uses them to knock out the earth's power grid and it strikes me as interesting that they would use that squadron to do that. And I was starting to think, why would they do that? This is a group who has been told you are the best of the best. You get special training. You deserve all of these entitlements that we are giving you. And a group like that would be more willing, I think, to absolutely blindly follow the orders of someone who has given them these things. Absolutely. Whereas maybe the standard core of Cadets... Any random group of them would start questioning, why are we doing this? What's this about? But when Cisco is interrogating or questioning one of the members of Red Squad about his actions, he is so proud of what they did. And you should have seen all of those power grids blinking out one by one. It was such a sight to behold. I'm watching The Boys right now. I haven't watched this show before, uh, but it's about a group of superhero characters and very quickly early on, I don't think this is a spoiler, you discover how much they see themselves as so much better than just the regular humans around them. And that is exactly what I saw in the face of that cadet when Cisco was asking him about what he had done. Yeah. Thinking Cisco, of course, was on his side for all of it too, but, uh, and we won't even like, we'll get to Valiant as well, which is very Disturbing, but this was disturbing enough. <laughs> he may have been a hero,
3: he may have even been a great man, but in the end, he was a bad captain <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but again, you know it's the fanaticism it's and I think this is maybe where you know the the, the descent into fascism can still happen in a post scarcity environment if we allow ourselves to kind of move in a direction where we create archetypes and ideals based around entitlement if i can build a house sure i should be able to own it that's not that's not necessarily outside of it. i'm going to have to procure all of the the things to do it but if i have a you know, an area where I can build a house and I build it, then by all rights, it should be mine. And I mean, obviously, I'm not going to de- delve too deep into the concepts of John Locke, a a, a thinker who basically codified the, the, the concept of liberal democracy, private property, and ultimately capitalism, right, where he basically says, like, if you, if you plant a tree, and you raise the tree, and you grow the tree, and you take care of it and water it, it's apples are yours to sell, right? You do the work, mm-hmm. you get the thing. Obviously, that, that jumps the shark over a lot of things in terms of if you own a factory, a lot of people are doing a lot of work for you and you're not doing that work. So, you know, in a socialistic sense, they would say that, well, what needs to happen is the wealth garnered by that factory needs to be distributed by everyone who works in it, managers and workers alike. And yes, there might be a discrepancy or a slight difference, but that difference shouldn't be a chasm from which neither side can see each other even in terms of wages. So again, Mm -hmm. we're getting into this point that, what's the currency in star trek because there has to be some kind of extrinsic slash intrinsic value well actually no i would say it has to be outside it has to be extrinsic it has to be outside of us that gets us to this and what do these kids want they want accolade they want to be the best they want to be looked at like the people they look at does that make Mm -hmm. sense
2: Absolutely. You can absolutely see that in Nog when he's telling Cisco about Red Squad, about how they get special assignments, these perks and all this extra training. And could Cisco please just put in a good word for him? And maybe he could get somebody on Red Squad to notice him and bring him into the group and stuff. He can taste it, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, part of it, I think they're playing on there is, you know, he's from an acquisitive society. He's from the Ferengi he wants to acquire, but you see that same lust in the faces of the members of Red Squad as well. So yeah, it, it's absolutely the prestige. It's the social capital that you get from being a part of that group.
3: Yeah. The social capital is, is a huge thing. And um, have you ever heard of the Stakhanovite movement? I know I have not. So Stakhanovites were named after a fellow by the name of Alexei Stakhanov, and he was a party member of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, CPSU, in 1936, and he was known as, like, the hardest worker. He was working, he would work day and night, and just, I think he was working in a coal mine, and, like... He worked from basically like dawn till dusk every day, and like tons and tons of coal he would be pulling out himself. And so this whole idea of a, you know, I'm a Stakhanovite, I'm going to work my arse off, I'm going to do this, it's it's for the merits, it's, you know, it's for the accolade. And it got out of hand in the 1930s in the USSR, where people wa- were overworking themselves in this blind urge to keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, right? Um, Che Guevara in Cuba, um, one of the leaders of the Cuban Revolution, talked about the socialist man, and you know he would work in the Cuban Parliament during the day, and then in the evening he would go out into the sugar canes and would cut cane for another couple of hours, working with farmers. And entertainingly, a lot of people in Cuba actually resented him for doing that because they're like, "Dude, I want to take a break, right?" Mm. And so I think to some degree, the Stakanovite movement. Echoed through a lot more socialist movements before that. And maybe we can see maybe just a tiny bit of a connection there of a mass cultural movement of merit that gets right out of hand Mm -hmm. and and can actually end up harming people because they do too much you know i don't want to get too much into like good can be bad but i've even heard stories in the past about west coast indigenous people who would do potlatches and would gift other people to the point of like personal bankruptcy (laughs) back Mm -hmm. in the day right they would like wind up with nothing because they kind of overdid it or something now I really need to take a step back because that's really all I know about that. So anyone out there who knows more than me, I am very happy for criticism and correction on that one. But I think you can weaponize a good thing, if that makes sense, to the point where it can actually cause existential harm, like all of the kids who, uh, if you haven't seen Valiant, this is an old spoiler, but uh, all but one survive, right? Outside of Jake and Nog. Mm -hmm. So. That's right, right? They they all go, like except the one kid. They
2: all go. Yeah. Oh absolutely. My gosh, yeah. <laughs> and that's <laughs> Yeah. And and that episode is chilling in a lot of ways. And the scene I'm thinking of in particular is where they're all assembled in the mess hall and Captain Waters, who's also just a cadet, it needs to be pointed out, but they've he was field promoted to captain all of the officers, like the adults are no longer there. It's just these kids aboard the ship. Uh, there's this plan to take on this Jem'Hadar battle cruiser. They outline it. It sounds somewhat reasonable. Nog's kind of, yeah, that makes sense. And Jake is the one Jake Cisco steps up and says, this looks crazy to me. My dad, you know him. He is one of the most decorated captains in Starfleet right now. He's leading the war effort against the Dominion. He would think this plan is crazy. He, he would not do this. This is dangerous. And he's making a lot of good points and being entirely reasonable. And the entire counterpoint to that is Captain Waters' stands up and yells, we're red squad and we can do anything. And the entire room starts chanting red squad, red squad, red. And then they go, go die. Basically like it is, they could have written a stirring speech that waters gives that rallies his troops. They didn't have to because they are already bought into this. They are already, they've drunk the Kool-Aid to, use a a dark metaphor there and (laughs) they end up exactly the same as everybody who drank that kool-aid
3: well here's a question for you young picard would he have been on Red Squad or Nova Nova Squad? Would he? Which one would he have fallen into? Is he a Red Squatter or a Nova Squatter? Do you think? In terms of his, I'm an entitled little cadet because he was. Holy crap! He needed he needed that Nausicaan to murder him.
2: Based on what we know of him as a cadet, and and people always get this wrong. They always think Kirk was the wild one and Picard was the studious, book smart one. No, it was very much the other way around. Picard, I feel like would have been on Nova Squadron. He would have been like the elite, the best of the best wanting to take those daring initiatives and, and that sort of thing. I mean, that was kind of the hallmark of his young career, right? He stood up to, he stood toe to toe with this Nausicaa, like he said, and ended up with a knife through the back because of it. And That's kind of what Nova Squadron was about, really.
3: Yeah, and and it is. It's pushing that entitlement to the point where you realize, wait a second, I'm mortal. Kirk Mm -hmm. had—bringing Kirk up, because I think he also kind of fits in this sort of—this realm of of toying with the entitlement and the fascistic qualities of a meritocracy. Kirk, I think— actually and despite you know performances of actors and stuff i think as a fleshed out character and seen in so many different iterations now and i think it's really important to see that i think kirk is actually not reckless and not a fly boy he just trusts his crew that much that he knows their limits and he knows how far he can stretch them and typically that's how it goes there are some points where kirk gambles wrong obviously But I would say most of the time, you know, when he's squaring off with what seems to be an impossible enemy, much like Batman, his utility belt is his entire crew, and he will somehow pull the right thing. It's either Scotty fixes the engines properly, Spock figures something out, Ohura hears something, you know, who knows, right? Like, whatever it is, he just knows that his crew is that good. And he can just be that, that confident, I think. And and that, that bravado and swagger fits really, really well. Whereas I think Picard does a really good job of a, well, Cisco does this part better of the it's lonely at the top, but Picard kind of started that out. And I think he does a lot of what needs to happen in a meritocracy. He's very understated. He's very nonchalant. He has a fish in his office. Like who cares, man? Seriously. Like he could have something way cooler than a fish. Um, so (laughs) it gives you this idea that like, he's sort of like the cool saucer that, that, that cools the tea, Um, before it lands, you know, he, he kind of cools that meritocracy idea and recenters it in a sense of duty and accountability in a lot mm-hmm. of
2: ways. In a lot, in a lot of ways, he's a guard against that tendency. Like he is constantly on alert for that. Like the yeah. episode, the drumhead, right? Nora yeah. Sati becoming too big for her britches and wanting to execute this me- this witch hunt in Picard's crew and Picard yeah. finally saying enough's enough and this can't go on and thankfully convincing the other admiral in the room to put a stop to it. But, uh, you know, that speech he gives Worf at the end, right? Yeah. The, uh, the villains aren't the mustache twirling obvious ones. It's the, it's the insidious things that you have to be on a constant lookout for.
3: Hundred percent, and and that's and that's sort of the glory of of how um, a meritocracy can be can be kept in check. I suppose is you need sort of a a ability to be accountable, and and it is that idea that you might be the best here, but you're not the best everywhere. So you need to know where your limits are. You need to know. Where to stop where to give power right I think that's another big big piece about any kind of society is how does how is the power distributed how are people making choices what choices are being made right there was an old quote by Noam Chomsky that basically asked is the state the moral agent or are the people the moral agents right like what's what's the moral agent in our society does it come from above with our charter of rights and freedoms or constitution or what have you or does it come from the movements within people uh, the different groups of people who advocate for different things, you know it is a bit of a chicken or the egg question that we can't necessarily answer completely, but I think Picard very much because the greatest sinners make the greatest saints he's he's a very good uh antidote to that kind of meretricious like right imagine if Will Riker didn't have Picard, right he'd have become a dork real fast,
2: yeah, absolutely. I also wanted to kind of jump back to, uh, you were talking earlier about the dark side of working too hard or, or wanting to make that kind of the center of everything. You have to imagine there are some people out there in the Star Trek universe that have heard that speech by Picard or wherever Picard got that speech that they work to better themselves and the rest of humanity. And sitting at home right now, making a podcast with you, like it's fun. And I think we're talking about some important stuff, but am I working to better myself and the rest of humanity right now? Or when I'm reading a book and you've got to imagine there are people that are sitting in their quarters. On the enterprise with nothing to do, maybe some of the civilians aboard the ship that don't have any pressing employment or jobs at the moment that are, you know, the spouse of an officer or something, just sitting in the corner, kind of going like, oh my God, I'm not bettering myself for the rest of humanity right now. Ah, what am I doing with myself? (laughs) I know people that are like that nowadays today. That, you know, always have to be productive, right?
3: Oh, I need to be productive. We need to make money. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Can you
2: imagine being like that in the Star Trek universe though?
3: Go to the holodeck and burn it out.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like it's not even money or anything like that. It's these high-minded ideals that you have to live up to. Oh God.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, I would say also to some degree, um, you can see that in the way religion goes in our society, mm, right? Mm-hmm. No one is more zealous than the recent convert right? Um, and they want to be the best, they want to do the best, they want to have the best, you know, uh, I was raised Catholic in my life. And, you know, there are certain things that you want to do to please, um, you know, please God and, and all this sort of stuff. And And, you know, religion and religious belief aside, for a really long time myself, you know, I did feel a certain level of like, oh, well, I didn't do a lot today in that respect. And and part of me wondered, you know, like, would God mind if I took a day off? He did. Um, that kind of <laughs> thing. <laughs> but I think that's the point, is I think in a society where you don't have to rush to make ends meet, you don't have to have that compulsion for productivity. And where, you know, when Picard says to Lily in First Contact, money no longer is no longer what drives us. What drives us is to make society and humanity better. What would that look like, right? What would, what would wanting to better humanity and society look like? I would actually say, Dan, to some degree, a happy and chipper Dan is one who has had a <laughs> podcast and, and, and is working on a podcast and doing a few things for himself. There's actually, um, even for the dyed-in-the-wool socialist, self-interest isn't necessarily the problem. It's when you let that self-interest consume Everything right. This is Mm -hmm. this is why we see grocery prices going up, and you know, rich people like what the the twelve most richest men or six most yeah, it was the six most richest men in the world have like doubled their all of their value or whatever they call that since the great wealth transfer of 2020 when COVID hit and we had all those things happen. So I mean, they're they're working in their self interest to the point that. They're they're actually harming other people, and I think maybe that's where things would get policed. But I do wonder what necessarily in a meritocracy, with everything at your fingertips, what a person would do, and I, I'm, I can't help but take us to You Only Move Twice in season eight of The Simpsons, Hank Scorpio, where Homer gets a job at a supervillain's power plant and... You know, aside from the kind of cheekiness of of working for a very friendly and like I'd work for him, he seems nice. Say Hank seems great. I'd love to play racquetball with him. Marge, Lisa, and Bart and Maggie really don't have anything to complain about. I'm sorry, Bart could use the remedial help. I will. I mean, it's a little <laughs> condescending where they put him. Mm-hmm. I will say that, but I mean, perception is everything, and maybe we're just seeing Bart's perception of what's going on in there. Lisa just needs to go buy some allergy medication. She'll be fine. I do it all the time. I'm having an allergic. Mm-hmm reaction right now as we speak and i'm suffering through folks but you can mm-hmm. hear my nose though and then marge i don't know she drank a glass of wine a day and needs to pick up a hobby like marge is damn smart she could probably get a degree if she wanted right learn from home take maggie to the lecture hall i'm sure hank scorpio has a university oh, um, yeah <laughs> so it is that kind of thing if you didn't have to make ends meet and you did have control over what you did what would you do I would probably
2: be doing what I'm doing right now. (laughs)
3: Yeah, me too. I'd be doing this a whole heck of a lot more. I would be maybe even writing my own Star Trek fan fiction. I have a whole novel in my head. Sorry, we're going way off topic here, folks. But I got a whole (laughs) novel in my head. And if I had the time, I'd write it. But as the late late Christopher Hitchens said, a lot of people have novels in their heads. And thankfully, that's where it stays for most (laughs) people. (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, wow. moving back around to what I'm basically saying here is in a meritocracy, I would hope that the mechanisms to keep people pursuing their their interests and their desires um, would be there. And I hope it would also move into a place where goodwill and helping other people and coming up with great ideas would be a thing. I mean, humankind has been, as a group, moving and growing for a really long time. And we did that without modern capitalism for like 250,000 years. So I feel like we've, we've got it in us.
0: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate?
2: Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Positively Trek. We truly do appreciate each and every one of our listeners. And I'd like to especially thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you to our Constitution Class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of Positively Trek and join our crew, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get early access to episodes, exclusive content, shout-outs, associate producer credits, ad-free episodes, episodes, and more. Again, that's patreon.com slash positivelytrek. Thank you all and live long and prosper. I was just thinking about examples in Star Trek where a meritocracy is shown to be working really well and a really good thing. And I don't usually use Voyager as an example enough in Star Trek. (laughs) It's kind of my least favorite and it kind of, you know, it's just, it's not my favorite part of Star Trek. I still really like it. It's still Star Trek. But it occurs to me that a really good example of a meritocracy is at the beginning the crew of the USS Voyager, this melding of the Starfleet and Maquis crew members, where at first, you know, Joe Carey is assumed to be the in the position of chief engineer because that's, you know, he was the star senior Starfleet officer who's there after most of the engineering crew died, but Janeway sees B'Elanna Torres in action and recognizes that, no, this is the person who needs to have that position and is given the rank of Lieutenant. She quit Starfleet Academy. She never graduated the Academy. She never became an officer. She's given a field promotion to a provisional Lieutenant rank and given command of Voyager's engineering. And that's kind of awesome. She has the experience. She has the know-how. She needs to count on some of the officers around her to help her through the Starfleet stuff, but she's the person for the job and gets it. Now, I, let's maybe not talk about Harry Kim in the same breath here, but uh, <laughs> let's just maybe keep it focused on Bolanatoris Torres because that's a good example. <laughs> Poor Harry, maybe not so much.
3: <laughs> that's a good point. Um, and, and, and the flack she gets for like mm-hmm. quite some time. I think is important to to consider as well in terms of that entitlement I was talking about, right? But he got the merit. I mean, I'll be honest, like maybe I might get a little chapped too if something that I'm like when will I like train for this? But also I think it's important to understand that there are going to be people who are better than you at stuff and when they're better at you at stuff, then the the number one thing you can be is useful. I think. And, and, you know, you might be good at a couple things that this new person might not be. So what better way to better yourself than by bettering the situation as a whole, learning more, and rising to the occasion of the person you just got replaced by? I kind of went through that in my own job, actually. I don't want to air dirty laundry or anything, but, like, it has been the most rewarding experience to swallow any pride I had and learn and just allow myself to be in a position of learning, a position of growth, um, and how much it, it kind of takes the weight off a person's chest when they realize that, like, no, no, you're not the only person for this job. There's totally other people who can replace you, um, but not in a bad way. It just means that there's a lot of people who are darn good at what they're doing. So get on board and and bring what you have to the table. And I think maybe understanding that, that breaking down of the rugged individualistic sense of... of Um, it's like a survivorship bias almost, right? Like, I'm the person to do this. You know, everyone's Connor McDavid on the ice, right? Everyone's going to be, you know, Einstein in the lab. Everyone's going to be president or, like, whatever. But no, like, you're probably not. Like, where you're at right now, if you're in your 40s, is probably about as far as you're going to get. And that's not a problem. That's actually... Something pretty great. Admire how far you got. Admire where you're at. Understand that that not being here is way more possible than being here. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, like enjoy enjoy the, the 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 things that make you you, and understand it's not purely wrapped around your career. And I think that's the big problem of Star Trek more than anything is it seems to be a very careerist society, right? You pick a thing, and you just go. And I mean, I would love to be able to do that. But I think if I lived in a post-scarcity society, I'd try baking, maybe I'd grow olives for a couple of years. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I would learn how to sail a yacht, you know, like there's just things I would just go and do, um, because it would be cool and neat. And I mean, I would do my part. Obviously, I'm an educator. So I would you know, educate wherever I would go or do something, maybe be a copy editor or something. Who knows? Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of flying off topic because this is a really interesting thought to me. I I, I think about post-scarcity Star Trek society on the reg. So sorry, Dan. (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. No, not at all. It's interesting to think about. And, and that was kind of the point of this is to see where the conversation goes. I'm not necessarily beholden to any particular linear path here. I was also thinking about something you said there, this very career driven Starfleet that we see is kind of interesting. And I feel like a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their heads around, you know, Oh, oh, if they're not getting money, what's the motivation kind of thing. Um, And I, I maybe thought that when I was younger, as I'm older, I can think of many motivations. And, you know, maybe when I was young, Picard saying we work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity might have been something I laughed at but now I I hold that really close to my heart. I think that's yeah. very noble and I can think of like yeah that, the the human experiment like let's work on that for a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Um it's funny though when you see you know, in best of both worlds and other episodes, Riker's offered a captaincy and warned, you know, you don't take this captaincy. You're probably just going to be first officer forever. And I don't know. And if that's something that Riker feels is important, I can see, okay, yeah, maybe whatever, but why not? Why not be first? He's a really good first officer, (laughs) you know, that kind of career or goal oriented language tends to get into Star Trek a little bit, it's kind of like, I want the writers to kind of dig into that a little bit more and say, well, why, why is that important? Maybe it is. I'm not saying it's not, but why, you know, I want to see more of that explored. And you and I talked a little bit before we started recording. I think part of that is, you know, the writers are just writing that episode that week. They're not worried about creating a framework for the basis of the society and how it works. Yeah. We as Star Trek fans want that. The writers are just telling a story about, you know, an entity possessing somebody's body that week or the Borg invading or something like that, right?
3: But it is, I, I think it is something we as Star Trek fans should be thankful of that to some degree are the writers who have written, you know, I'm thinking Michael Piller, especially writing things that do provoke Thoughts of like, wait, why are they doing this? They're not getting any money. That doesn't make sense. And then, you know, Picard says something, you know, important, right? You get your bonk, bonk on the head speech by someone at the end of the episode where it basically explains like this is why we're doing this because we believe in humanity, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I think that's something, again, that that takes us into our history, deep, deep history. Again, I, I might be wading into places I don't necessarily belong Totally. But what I understand of, you know, indigenous society out here on the Canadian Prairie or so-called Canadian Prairie is, is basically a society that did do a lot of work for the sake of maintaining and sustaining and that was the reward the reward was coming back the next year and finding the stuff you planted or the stuff you were taking care of or you know changing the direction of a bison herd because you know the grass isn't good in a certain area and you're not going to be able to hunt and that helps you know like it's that kind of idea that you know even in the fur trade indigenous people knew to stockpile goods one way or another because those ships got frozen in the ice a lot and they had to keep the the circle turning it wasn't a Money is about the system that had been created, and so I often wonder if that in itself is why we could see something like Star Trek in our hearts you know, and our our people who write kind of write for it. But there are still going to be tendencies for people to do to do bad or for people to skip the line. Um, I just noticed, and it, it's sort of picking at me a little bit. You say here's Kirk and star Trek. Oh, nine in our, in our thoughts. Am I jumping us too far ahead or is this a good time to bring that up? I'm, I find 2009 Trek Kirk to be the most interesting and engaging Kirk because <laughs> a lot of reasons, Chris Pine and I have the same birthday.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah, no, I, th- I think this is a good time to talk about that. The reason I put him on the list here is because one of the the things that really bugs me about that film, and I think a lot of Star Trek fans, it gets brought up a lot is, you know, you have Kirk who's in the Academy and then is made first officer and captain of the enterprise in kind of basically a week's time. Like it just, yeah. it happens so quickly. And I was wondering if maybe the Starfleet philosophy of a meritocracy could maybe go, some distance and explaining that a little bit, or maybe massaging that a little bit to make it feel a little bit better. Because a lot of people would say he hasn't earned that. He, you know, there's all these officers that he's bypassed and all this stuff. Was he maybe just that good at the Academy that like basically Starfleet isn't a hard and fast military the way we see it as. And, rank isn't analogous in the same way that it is in our world and our armed forces and that sort of thing maybe that sort of thing is a little more common than we realized maybe that does happen and kirk is just another person that this happened to or not that this happened to but who earned it through his performance and his aptitude and the abilities that he uh demonstrated
3: I would say yes to all of those things. And I think, honestly, one of the reasons was folks like the the JJ versus Captain Pike was clearly had him on his radar no matter what. And Mm. to some degree... You know, he's a bit of a maverick in that sense. Um, He's a bit of a, a, even sort of an Achilles, you know, or he's a bit of a a Casino Royale James Bond, the way he gets the crap kicked out of him constantly. I do feel that Kirk earns the promotion in the end. Um, He does everything a captain should do to be a captain. And, And the number one thing is he trusts his crew. There's a point where Ohura turns to him and she's like, I sure hope you're right about this or something. And he like looks at her and he's like, me too. And there's just that moment where, like, yeah, he was a womanizing little squirt of a dork. who was going at her and rightly (laughs) got put in his place. Uh, And then afterwards, you know, she's still quite doubtful of him. But even in that moment when she says it, there's a bit of trust in what she's saying. And he kind of echoes it back at her in that sense where like, he's like, yeah, no, I, your criticism is merited, like Mm -hmm. in his own special way. And so I think ultimately, you know, I'm thinking of him on the Narada. I'm thinking of him, outsmarting IL. I'm thinking about him jumping off of a platform to save Sulu. I'm thinking of him when Scotty's got a crazy idea on how to get them out of that black hole. He's just like do it, do it, do it. Right. It's all of those things where I just feel very much that he earned it in that sense and in a very real and tangible way. I'm someone who once got a promotion without earning it. And then I spent I have hopefully, at least hopefully do the people who hired me, um, I've spent the rest of my career now proving to them that their, inv- that their investment in me was, was worth it because they did, you know, promote me beyond what I, what I feel I deserved in certain cases in the past, you know. And obviously, labor law wasn't broken or anything like that. I just feel like I got a very uh, important and a unique opportunity that I've hoped to try to rise to the occasion of. And I would say that you see that in the J.J. versus Kirk. He's more stoic than any Kirk. Uh, I would say Um, when he stands on the bridge in the the, the third episode of the Star Trek Beyond and stuff, the last one to leave, all that sort of stuff, there's something about that Kirk that I like. And I think the idea of him getting fast tracked to a captaincy versus the other route he took, you know, plodding through Starfleet in in the Prime Universe, um, I think he feels that. So I very much feel that, that Kirk in 09 deserves the promotion. And you. I think you've you've opened it up that, you know, in our world, sometimes people, you know, stumble on something and wind up with a really great oil deposit in, on their land or or they win the lottery or they're like a famous singer who gets found out of nowhere and now they're hosting TV shows and stuff. It happens. Uh, and not everyone can rise to that occasion. And thankfully, Kirk could.
2: That's good. I appreciate that for sure. The, uh, the J.J. Abrams films are something that I wouldn't mind re-exploring someday. It's kind of been, uh, it's been a while. I wouldn't mind looking back at those. Enough time has passed. <laughs> such <laughs> is the circle of start. Such is the cycle of Star Trek. Right? right. Right. Everybody hates it. Everybody says, why can't the new thing be like that thing was? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's just,
3: yeah. All the time.
2: No. Well, speaking of promotions, I think the Admiralty is something that I want to talk about because there's this phenomenon in Star Trek, the badmirals, right? How many, we, we can list off tons of examples of admirals who are involved in some sort of nefarious plot to do X, Y, or Z or circumvent things. Or, you know, how does Starfleet end up with so many of these? corrupt bad faith admirals at the top as captain freeman says of admiral buen amigo in lower decks right how how does this happen there's so many of them
3: (laughs) i personally think that's just a writer's trope and it's something that you wouldn't necessarily see in the military but if i don't know like I don't want to again get too deep into the politics of things and people may have mixed opinions and stuff, but I'm going to use China as an example here. Um, they execute corrupt millionaires, like not on the reg reg, but like I watched a, a documentary on a, a Chinese developer who built part of a city uh, in preparation for the population in Beijing to go up. And he basically pocketed a ton of the money and they caught him and he was shot like within a, like a year or something of getting caught and spending time in like different litigations and court and stuff. And this like apartment complex is still just sort of standing half built and they don't really know what to do with it and stuff. And so I, you know, is greed potential in a post-scarcity world? Absolutely. Um, And would people try to take more than their, than their fair share even uh, at the expense of others? Absolutely. I mean, it's something that could still easily happen in any society. I just think it's rewarded in ours in a lot of cases uh, in certain unfortunate, in unfortunate ways. Um, but could an admiral, you know, like, no, I think basically any of these bad admirals are Nova Squad styled, maybe Red Squad, but Red Squads are a little more fanatic. Um, they're going to be somewhere else in a the second. There are a bunch of Nova Squatters who unfortunately managed to slip through the cracks and with their cunning and probably sociopathic behavior, uh, managed to get into a position of power.
2: The the rank, the rank, real rank chasers, I think. These would be the people that are like trying to rank up as fast as possible and because they got an agenda. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that a lot of them have, I would say, different agendas as well. It always struck me as interesting that Admiral Dougherty from Star Trek Insurrection, right? He's, he's the worst. <laughs> he's so bad. He's after this technology, or after this these particles that will stop aging. And... Interestingly, right before the end, he, when he's found out and Picard's chastising him, right? He says, it was for the Federation. I did it all for the Federation. I feel like this is the guy, just thinking it through right now, this is the guy that heard the, we work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity and just like took off with it. Like he was like... It's my moral duty to do everything possible to help humanity and, and advance the cause to the point where he did terrible things to people who weren't humanity in order to reach those goals. And then other people, um, I, I honestly think Buen Amigo in Lower Decks puts it really well, where, you know, Carol Freeman says to him, he's like, you aren't one of these admirals, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I really am. and he justifies it by saying Starfleet is so competitive. Once you're an Admiral, you hit a wall and he just like wanted to make a name for himself with this new technology. So again, there's that, you know, personal kind of, accolades and social uh, capital i guess standing out in the crowd kind of thing
3: like i mean we all want to be the person who discovers uh what was it frederick banting uh found um the cure for or not the cure but but uh insulin insulin yeah. yeah and then who is the person who came up with the polio vaccine didn't they get like a pub or something like piped like a beer tap right into their house as like a response or something. I can't remember now. But I mean, we all want that kind of accolade. We all want to be remembered, right? I mean, uh, bad news. None of us, after about 200 years, are going to be really remembered. I guess that's the point is, you know, maybe understanding that that what we leave behind, Star Trek reference, um, is <laughs> perhaps more in the society we leave behind and that we are actually the sum of all of these parts or parts of the sum, I guess, more, more, more accurately. And it's that hubris and personal pride uh, and entitlement that makes people go too far, even with a good thing, right? What, what Doherty needed was to embrace the fact that he was aging, right? Something that I think Picard in the series, Picard series one, uh, season One does a better job of dealing with right I mean, really, what is Picard season one and two about but death right mm-hmm. and and how we manage and how we we make friends with death it's 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 going to happen, and understand that that really Doherty was driven by his own personal fear of death a lot in a lot of ways, and yeah, he was able to do it because he felt he was doing it because now everyone doesn't have to die and it's something I don't want to do and I'll kill these other people I'll make their lives miserable uh in order to make that happen well guess what you have just foreclosed all ethical uh high ground and moral high ground and you deserve to be chastised at least I mean he got his face all screwed up and whatever and that's really sad
2: well I I have it on the list here do we want to touch a little bit on section 31
3: all I gotta say is section 31 is red squad that got uh, secret service status
2: yeah, like they accountable to no one, believe themselves to be the arbiters of right and wrong. I, I think they're they're the self-appointed elite of the Federation, right? The worst part of Star Trek in my eyes. I think Section 31 yeah.
3: is why starfleet will eventually be destroyed and i know mm. you know obviously um discovery has taken us a really far ways into the future but i think there's a tie between the temporal per- police as well in section 31 i just i mean as much as i'm excited for michelle yo's little venture into that coming up that's going to be absolutely awesome and i'm really looking forward to it section 31 is a complete abdication of any star trek and starfleet values federation values you name it um mm. it is abhorrent and deserves to be destroyed. Yeah. Give me back the marquee. I'll take the marquee. Not <laughs> not section 31.
2: Here here. Well, I guess uh final thoughts on all of this. I don't know that we've reached any conclusions necessarily. I think this has been a really great discussion uh to be continued because mm. I love stuff like this. Yeah meritocracy in starfleet in the federation is it fair would something work better than that is it kind of the best of what we've got what do you think
3: well i'm going to i'm going to mention two authors who i who i admire um uh, Manusadia uh, wrote a book called Trekonomics, and I interviewed him many, many years ago, and I hope he's doing well. Uh, he uh, he wrote this book, Trekonomics, basically looking at the, the economics of Star Trek, and he, he delves deeply into um, the world of meritocracy. So anyone listening, if you can find the book, uh, pick it up. Uh, if you live nearby, you can borrow it, um, and uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but the other one would be uh, Josh Mufawid Paul. Um, I believe he is a professor at York University. He's a Marxist author and he mentions the idea that that really the conditions that we think made Star Trek, you know, to the layperson really aren't possible. Um that that a through war and destruction some Vulcan skyhook is going to come down and save us from ourselves, mm, not really thinking that's actually going to happen. So what's the alternative? The invisible hand of capitalism has ironed out all differences? I don't think so either. Um, I think what's really important to understand about Star Trek is we don't get to a post-scarcity society, whether we're traveling the stars or we're traveling the sea or we're just happy on Earth or whatever. um, We don't get that without fundamentally changing what values we have, right? Um, Mm -hmm. you don't have to work nine to five, actually. Uh, You don't have to grind and everything like that. When so much wealth has been transferred out of our hands into the hands of the the very, very few, that's an indication to me that we're moving further away from the dream of Star Trek. And it would be nice to live in a, a place where merit truly was the point, but we always have to guard against ableism that can always harm merit. And I think the number one thing, That we can do right now as Star Trek fans is swallow our pride, move with a little bit more humility, understand that we're not the and-all-be-all number one of everything, and that we can ultimately work towards a better world. I don't think I'm going to space, but I do think we can live a better life if we think about the values of what keep people on a starship together, right? the camaraderie the fellowship the friendships um the ability to have fun together right what crew in star trek doesn't have fun together with the exception of the motion picture yeah <laughs> nobody's well, having that, fun
2: they have that big huge rec room right they must uh that oh they no they just watch, they just watch space stations get destroyed right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway maybe that's my final thought
3: is we are now in a place where they're saying you know where we're Gabriel Bell and the Bell Riots and Irish Unification and stuff. Well, those things they didn't just slip on a banana peel and make those things happen. You have to get up and do something. So my big thing with Star Trek all the time is, if what you like in Star Trek is something you want to see in reality, then start acting like it.
2: I could not agree with you more. I love warp drive and transporters and all of that. That's that's the dressing. On what I think is a fundamental message of Star Trek, which is on the macro level, a society that has moved past these issues that has learned fundamentally to change how they approach each other and the world around them to be good stewards of the galaxy slash world and to be good people to each other and to make the rest of humanity better to consider every choice that they make as part of the whole. Uh, and on the micro level, a group of colleagues working well together who respect each other. And I think both of those are valid readings of star Trek and what I like most about it. So, uh, yeah. Um, kudos for, for everything you said. I agree. One (laughs) hundred percent.
3: Let's all, let's all go out and be a group of colleagues who respect each other. That can, that can yeah. be at a grocery store, at a, at a mechanic shop, at a university, mm-hmm. uh, on a bus.
2: <laughs> 100%. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'd love to hear from everybody in our audience. If you have thoughts on this or anything else we've talked about on the show, get in touch with us, positivelytrek at gmail.com. We've also got the Facebook Positively Trek discussion group. Feel free to leave your thoughts there. We'll have a post for this episode or just start a discussion on anything to do with the Star Trek universe. Uh, We'd love to have you join us there. So with that, thank you all so much for listening this week. We'll be back again soon. Until then, as always, stay positive.